Thank you, Nate. I invite you to take your Bibles and go with me once again back to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, this is the conclusion of our series now for several months on grace. I want to look at one final text here as we come to the book of Jude. While you're turning, I'd encourage you to think through um, your boundaries. There's a lot written and talked about today as to boundaries and a need for boundaries, and um, some of that's good, some of that might also be harmful, um, but I wonder what your boundaries are. Um, we talk about boundaries emotionally today, uh, we talk about boundaries relationally today, uh, we talk about boundaries occupationally, like where are the boundaries for work and trying to keep that in its right place is a challenge. Uh, in many, many ways, and so there's all these different things written about boundaries, and again, there's, there's a side of that that's probably good to make sure that we keep our priorities in the right order. Uh, there is a side of me as a pastor, as a believer, that also gets concerned sometimes because um, Christ pretty t- much told us that we are to lose our life for his sake, not try to save it, and that we are, should be willing to spend and be spent in ministry to others. Uh, example of the Apostle Paul, example of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can kind of hide, well, I, I have some boundaries. Um, so we have to very carefully, prayerfully evaluate what our boundaries are. I'd remind you in just a very simple way, if you're like, I don't know what my boundaries are, you have boundaries physically. You go home, you close the door, and there's boundaries there. And if someone crosses those boundaries, you have issues. Why are you in my home, right? I mean, we have even legal protections along those lines to go, if you enter here, I'm either going to get help or I'm going to defend myself because there are boundaries there. It's like, this is my domain. And if you don't have a reason to be here, I'm kind of wondering what's going on and I'm concerned. So here's my next question for you. What are your spiritual boundaries? Where if that boundary is crossed, action takes place. There's probably a lot of different answers to that. But in the text in front of us today, it reminds us that there are spiritual boundaries that we aren't just to defend, we're actually to promote, we're to advocate for. We live in a day where that's actually probably not a real popular thought when it comes to boundaries. Well, that's just you and you you need to be a little more tolerant, you need to be a little more understanding, and yet the text of Scripture is going to tell us, here's some truth that you'd better fight for. You'd better not concede. And there comes a day where people will push on it. They will live differently. They will excuse. And Jude is writing to tell these believers, here's some important things, some important truth that you need to defend. So we come to the text in verses 3 and 4, our text for this morning. We're going to begin by looking at his initial purpose. He sits down to write, or he, he has this goal to go, you know what, I'd like to write to these believers, and he tells them, here was my initial purpose in wanting to communicate with you. I, I had this burden, I had this desire, I had this thought. In fact, you'll notice as you come to verse 3 that his writing is driven by affection. He speaks to them as beloved brothers in Christ, to go, here are people that I care for. It would not be out of place for him to just simply say, brothers, Um, and address them just on the status of believers. But he does care for these individuals, and he's communicating a message that is driven by love. You know, we we can kind of look at what follows later and be like, ooh, that's kind of cold, or that's kind of harsh, or 
but it is actually motivated by love. As we've talked about many times in the scriptures as believers, we ought to be balancing a defense of the truth with a demonstration of love. I want to hold both. I want to be someone who is marked by both truth and grace, by both truth and love. So his initial purpose first is driven by affection. Very different, by the way, than last week. Like, I do think Paul cared for the Galatian believers when he writes to them. But you remember, like, you're only six verses in. And he's like, guys, I marvel that you are so soon removed from the grace of God into another gospel. Like, he's like, I'm shocked. How did this happen that you've gotten off so quickly? Here, we read Jude, and he's saying, beloved. It's driven by affection. But secondly, I would have you notice that his initial purpose is not only driven by affection, it started with determination. He's like, I gave all diligence to write unto you. Okay, um, This might be different than the way that you and I function sometimes. You might think, you know, I really ought to call them. I really ought to write to them. And yet you and I don't have all diligence in doing so. Okay, We're like, well, yeah, it's a good thought. And then a week, couple weeks go by. It's like, well, yeah, it's, I, I really should reach out. Or maybe by that time it's kind of gone by the wayside. That's not what Jude is communicating here. The idea of giving all diligence speaks to a committed zeal to one's obligation that acts with speed. I need to do this, and so I'm going to run to do this, to get this done. So Jude's like, I care about these guys, and I decided I need to write to them, and so I'm going to rush to do it. And as we continue looking at his initial purpose, we realize that it is not just driven by affection and starting with determination. His initial purpose was focused on salvation. I wanted to write to you. I made haste to write to you about the common salvation. And when we come to that word common, we don't mean something that's just kind of ordinary that we should take for granted. Like sometimes we hear that word common today and it's like, oh, well, yeah, that's, that's just, that's common, you know. Dandelions in my yard are common. Actually, in my yard, clover is very common, but I live on Clover Lane, so it works. Okay? And it's like we take it for granted. It's like you know, someone comes in with a fistful of clover, and it's like, well, yeah. That's not what this means. The idea of common means this is something that we share, share collectively. And so in essence, he's telling them, I wanted to write to you guys. I, I was getting after this goal to write to you, to remind you about what we have in Jesus Christ, about the good news of the gospel. That's the kind of stuff that we like to read. To go, when you come to the gospel of Jesus Christ in common salvation, you go, you're forgiven in Jesus by faith. He declared you righteous. He's given you new life. He's given you an inheritance in heaven, adopting you as a legal heir to all that's there. It's like, this is awesome. Like, when we hear a message of the common salvation, the typical responses are, number one, believe the message, and number two, rejoice in your salvation. Like, this is good stuff. And so Jude is saying, here's what I wanted to write about. But God had different plans. God had different plans. And again, I can, I can think of it almost in the way we approach things. Like, I'm, you know, if I come into church and someone's speaking, I'm like, hey, you know what? It would be great to hear about what I have in Christ. It would be great to be encouraged in the gospel. It would be great to rejoice in what has been done. And those things should occur. But there are times where we need to be reminded, and now here's a responsibility that you have. 
Here's where work needs to be done. Defense needs to take place. And that's what happens in this little letter of Jude. Rather than calling these believers to understand the gospel and and thereby to believe and to rejoice, he's going to tell them, stand and defend. Oh, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Like, that's hard. I mean, if you knew my neighbors, if you knew my workplace, if you knew my family, if you knew my personality, that's not really me. And all of a sudden, we kind of come up with all these reasons to not do what the text of Scripture is telling us to do. But he's going to call them not simply to say, here's your common salvation, believe and rejoice, but here's the truth, stand and defend it. Which is why I began by asking us, what are your boundaries spiritually? When will things come up spiritually and you're like, no, I have to stand for truth. I need to defend the truth. Because there are points where that must be done. And I will go ahead and say now that what we put inside those boundaries, we need to evaluate very, 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 very carefully. Okay? Because sometimes we add too much in. And sometimes we add too little in. And if we just stick with the word, instead of tradition or our opinion, our feelings, our experiences, we're helped by just staying with what the word says. We move from this initial priority at the beginning of verse 3 to or this initial purpose in verse 3, to an urgent priority. He says, it was needful for me to write unto you. That word needful speaks of pressing down, like it's compelling him. It's like, I wanted to do this, but I felt this pressure just pushing on me to go, you need to do this instead. Here's what you need to write on. And again, if you listened as we worked through the scripture reading, I do realize there's a lot of verses, and you're like, well, we're talking about Old Testament stuff there, and angels there, and like, what's going on with all of this? You begin to get the sense as you read through Jude that there's judgment being foretold. Now, after that judgment, at the end, there's hope. Like, keep yourselves in the love of God. Uh, it's unto this one that we should have glory. But there is judgment within the book. What is he compelled to write about in this urgent priority. Well, let's look first at the function of the priority. The function of the priority. We might call it this. It's a responsibility to contend. A responsibility to contend. He's like, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend. I like the picture of that word exhort. We've talked about it before. Uh, It is the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit as comforter. It means to call to one side. He's like, so believers, why don't you come alongside here with me, and we're going to talk through this, and we're going to work through this, and we're going to do this together. I'm going to encourage you in the process. I'm not just simply going to say, hey, you over there, you take care of that. He's like, let's do this. Let's come together, and we're going to share our defense of the truth, our defense of the faith. So he says, I called you alongside to encourage you strongly that you should earnestly contend. Earnestly contend is in the present tense as a verb, meaning you should be in an ongoing way earnestly contending for the faith. Not just sporadically or intermittently, but consistently contending for the faith. The word earnestly contend speaks of exerting an intense effort for a noble cause 
for the good of a larger group. Now, that's a longer definition than we use a lot of times, but I think it's important. To exert effort for a noble cause for the good of a larger group. Inside the word, it's a compound word, but inside the word is the Greek word that we get our English word agonize for. And I find that, again, helpful because it presents a word picture in our mind. To go, this isn't going to be all easy. This may cause pain, but I want you to earnestly contend for the faith. If you were to look at how was this word used back then in different contexts, at least three contexts begin to show up. One is legal context to set your defense. To go, here's, here's the argument. Here's what I'm contending. Here's what I'm defending. Another is military context. To go, here's the battle as it's being waged and, and the fight that's taking place both offensively and defensively. And then the third context is sporting events. To go, you know what? We're earnestly contending for the prize. We're running that we may obtain. 1 Corinthians 9 kind of language, 2 Timothy 2 kind of language. To go, I'm not just doing this, well, you know, we're, this is just a participation thing. We're having a good time. It's like, no, I'm playing to win. Okay? I am earnestly contending here, why? That the truth would win in Jude verses 3 and 4. So I would ask us, are you willing to earnestly contend for the truth? Or maybe we should ask that more directly for all of us. Do you earnestly contend for the truth, for the faith? To know this is what I believe. The Bible says we must. In other words, do you have boundaries that can't be crossed where tolerance doesn't win out and go, no, I refuse to believe that the Bible is just a work of man. I refuse to believe that Jesus was just another person. I refuse to believe that Christianity is some relic from past history that people have used for a crutch. I refuse to believe that the world wasn't made by God and it just somehow happened. The function of the priority involves a responsibility to contend. And again, I just remind you, Jude is not written to like, here's the responsibility for a pastor. This isn't 1 Timothy 3. This isn't Titus 1. This isn't a pastoral epistle. This is like all of us. We have a responsibility to earnestly contend for the faith. And I, I would remind us that just standing for the faith, just standing for the truth, just standing for the gospel, 1 Corinthians 1, is an offense. Okay? The gospel offends people to realize that we are sinners, that we need a Savior. I don't, I don't sin. I don't need a Savior. You're going to tell me that? Well, who are you? Like the gospel by its nature of the message is offensive. That does not mean that as I seek to argue for the truth, present the truth, I need to be offensive as well. Let the truth offend. Do your best to get out of the way and not be the one who offends. doesn't mean that you're anyhow less direct, but I want to speak the truth in love. Having looked at the function of the priority, notice the focus of the priority. The function was a responsibility to contend. The focus of the priority is a stewardship of the truth earnestly contend for what? For the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. I believe we've talked about this before, but uh, the word faith occurs a couple times in the New Testament where it's preceded by the definite article. He is not saying earnestly contend for a faith. 
He is not saying earnestly contend for your faith. He looks at Christianity as a defined set of beliefs. To go, here's what has. Later he'll say this in later in Jude. We read it in the scripture reading. Here's what the apostles have taught you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Those called and gifted uniquely by God with apostolic authority to build the establishment of the church. And to go, here's what they've said. So this is the apostles' doctrine, Acts chapter 2 will tell us. To go, this is the faith. It is not my faith. It is not the Baptist faith. It is what does the New Testament say? What has God revealed to us through his word? If you want some parallel texts that point to the faith, Paul calls Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12 to fight the good fight of the faith. Go stand, fight for this. It is worth standing upon. Paul himself will give testimony to his fight in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. He's like, I have sought to be honest to the truth that was given to me. When we read that phrase, which was once delivered unto the saints, we need to make a number of observations there. This word delivered means handed over or entrusted. Okay? In other words, it's not contrived. It's not in progress. You notice that word once delivered? Like, this isn't somehow ongoing. Well, you know, the church today has said, or this authority within the church or church history has said, he goes, no, take that which was once handed over. It's done. It's closed. And take that and contend for that faith. It was entrusted. It's like this stewardship that we have. Just thinking about it this way, you know, there are times where our family will be going to a holiday event or maybe something at church or just getting together with someone and we travel in the car and my wife will have made whatever dish and it's like all laid out very nicely in there. You know, I'm usually worried about taste more than presentation. Um, a lot of the ladies in the room, some of the guys I'm sure are like, no, taste and presentation matter. And so it's like, nope, don't tilt it. Make sure it's flat. Hold it. Don't, don't set it. And like you're making sure that what you've been entrusted with gets from point A to point B in the way that it's supposed to, that it doesn't slide and kind of all smash together. It's like you have this responsibility. You have one job. Hold it flat. Take care of it. Make sure it arrives the way it was given to you. Far more important when we come to the truth to go, God's given you his word. Make sure it gets from point A to point B. Make sure it goes from the time you received it till the time you leave this world that it's given exactly the way that you got it. Not, well, you know, I've kind of changed my thought on that, and I really, I really think this, but to take the truth and give it exactly as you received it. Be careful what gets added to the faith. Be careful. Last week, we spent a lot of time looking at people who in self-righteousness added to the faith. Well, now I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. And well, now you need to go back and keep this part of the law. And even Peter gets hung up at it in Galatians. And Paul has to rebuke them strongly to go, you're messing it up. You're distorting the grace of the gospel. It's not the same kind. And so you and I need to be very careful that when we earnestly contend for something, it is not our personal standards, opinions, or applications. It is not our experiences or feelings. We live in a world today that when it comes to spiritual things, likes to say, 
well, I really just feel. Your feelings don't matter. My feelings don't matter. It's a question of what has God said? What does the Bible say? What does the Word say? Because again, our experiences, they ebb and flow. Our feelings certainly do. I love that text. We've talked about it before. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter's writing. And Peter reminds them that he saw the transfigured Christ in all of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? He reminds them of that. It's like, whoa, we beheld his glory. Like, that's amazing. Can you imagine the experience being there? I don't think we can. But what does Peter say coming out of that? We also have a more sure word of prophecy. Peter's like, there's actually something that is more reliable to help you understand God than having seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he points to Scripture. He says, knowing this first, no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation, for prophecy came out in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. To go, this isn't just some man-made product of someone's like, hey, you know what, I want to write something down. God drove it. So it matters. I wonder if you and I hold the Bible that way. To go, you know what? Regardless of what I think, regardless of what I feel, I want to know what the Word says. I want to follow it. I want to believe it. I want to obey it. I want to communicate it to others. Jude's saying, earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. To go, here is where truth is found. I will cling to it. I will fight for it. There's great danger for us if we get off base and we begin to distort the word of God. Right? To distort the faith, to twist it in our stewardship. It is what Satan has been trying to do from the beginning, right? Genesis 3. Have God said? Let's just, let's shade that a little bit. No, you know why God said that? He is the father of lies. He is a master of deception. And he wants to take the truth and twist it. We were reminded, even our Sunday school class this morning, Romans chapter 1, verse 25, that it's not just what the devil does, it's actually the propensity of man, sinful man, to change the truth of God into a lie. That's in my heart and yours apart from grace, to twist the truth. Jude is calling us beyond that to say earnestly contend for the faith. Stick to what God has delivered in his word. It is the truth. And I'd remind you, the scriptures are replete with warnings against those who distort the truth and false teaching. Whether you're in Galatians or Jude or 2 Peter or 1 and 2 Timothy or 1 John or Acts 20 and so many more. We do face a danger of false teaching today. Redefining sin, excusing selfishness, leading to immorality, going, hey, this is self-care, Let's excuse uh, your choice with marriage because it's just optional. Let's ge let gender be a preference, and we could go down all these different sin lists. Why did I choose the ones that I particularly chose? Well, let's see where the text goes next. Having looked at the initial purpose and then the more urgent priority, third, and when we come to verse four, we see the insidious problem. The insidious problem. It's insidious because it's covert, number one. You notice there in verse 4, for there are certain men crept in unawares. They, they came in unnoticed, they were subtle, they were stealthy. 
there are these people who've come in and they're going to teach in a way, they're going to promote a lifestyle, they're going to live in a way that is detrimental to the faith. It undermines the truth. Again, I would remind us that the error isn't always obvious. Or we would reject it. We'd reject it. No, that's wrong. And the reason Jude has to write, again, Jude makes it very clear. I wanted to write this, but it became very needful to write this. The Spirit of God inspiring Jude is like, hey, this right now we got to address because they're missing it. And they've come in and it's totally been overlooked and there is now a massive problem. It's got to be addressed. And so we need to be on guard to go, Lord, have I accepted thinking that is not according to your word? Do I allow myself to live in selfishness that if it continues will absolutely not just deceive me, but destroy me. Because you're going to see in verse 4 that this isn't just simply a matter of doctrinal attack, it is practical lifestyle. That part of earnestly contending for the faith is that these people have given themselves over to living in very selfish, sensual, sinful ways. So I would just encourage us all as we seek to obey the text of Scripture, myself, yourself, we earnestly contend for the faith to be on guard, to watch out for that which is covert but deceives. We live in a day. It can happen here. We're not immune to it. It can happen here. But we also live in a day where it's like, I can get spiritual teaching in all kinds of places. I can listen to podcasts and get more psychology than scripture. I think, well, yeah, that's really good. That makes sense. Actually, I was called to deny myself, not to indulge myself, but the psychology there is just telling me to indulge myself. Or I, I can read it in posts online. I can get plenty of books out there about it. And we just have to be going back to the Word. We ought to spend more time there in the Word than in those other resources. The insidious problem was covert. We need to be on guard. Number two, the insidious problem was condemned. Okay? There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. That word ordained means it was marked down beforehand. It was written down beforehand. God had long ago declared judgment on false teaching. It was testified to by the prophets. In fact, you know, one of my favorite texts in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 23, God just goes after the prophets. And he's like, you've gone, and you said I said, but I didn't say, and so I am against the prophets, because you're saying, I have a dream, and I didn't send you. Like, we need to be very careful with that. So he says, hey, these people were before of old ordained. It was written down, marked down ahead of time, that they're going to face judgment. There are a number of examples in Jude, I'm not going to go back through them, we read them in our scripture reading, where it's like, let's talk about what happened for those who distorted the truth and lived selfishly. Go back and look at the angels that sinned. Go back and look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Go, look, go back and look at Balaam. Go back and look at Korah. And he just goes through these examples, like one right after the other after the other, just to remind us that God does judge those who move from the truth. And so we are called to remain faithful to the truth of God's word, to re remain faithful to the, the faith that was delivered to us. The insidious problem was covert, be on guard, was condemned, remember their end. The third, it was characterized. It's described in three ways as we work our way through the rest of verse four. First, notice that the danger 
is selfishly irreverent. The danger of these false teachers is selfishly irreverent. They are described in the text first as ungodly men. That word ungodly means that they are irreverent. They have no awareness of God. They have no care for God. They don't put God in his right place. You know, when we talk about someone who's godly, we're not trying to talk about someone who's, um, well, you know, they just do everything right. There's someone who's godly says, I live with a God awareness. I live, you know, sometimes we'll say this, we live for the audience of one. Go, what God says, that's who I want to please. And I'm going to fear him. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to strive to obey him the best I can. So he says, these individuals, they have no God awareness. That ought to cause us just to pause for a moment and go, so how did my week go? How did your week go? Like when that situation came up at work or there was just that frustration at home with that child or with your spouse, it's like, you know what? God doesn't want me to act that way. God's word says, I, I need God's grace. So God, I'm just going to turn to you and pray and ask you to work. Do, do we live with an awareness, like an ongoing conscious awareness of God? So what he says, I want to dictate my thinking, my responses. It is possible scripture teaches us to go, well, yeah, I know God, and then to live in an ungodly way. Because we could be here and go, well, yeah, I know God but then live in an ungodly way. These people crept in, but they're ungodly. And if we need like further evidence, I'd remind you, Titus chapter 1, right? He's telling them, rebuke these people because, verse 16, they profess that they know God, but in their works they deny him. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Actually, you don't live with a God awareness. He doesn't rebuke them. Because they, they profess that they know God, but they don't. By the way, in that same context, it's intriguing how these themes overlap. It says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. <laughs> like, help them out so that they understand they need to be sound in the faith because they are turning from the truth, verse 14 says. They claim to know God, but they're not living that way. 2 Timothy 3 would say it this way in verse 1, they're lovers of their own selves. Verse 4, they're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. But then in verse 5, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. In other words, he's saying they live for themselves, and they kind of love God, but they love themselves more. And so they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. We don't want to live there. It's a dangerous place, a deceived place to be. Rather than believing the truth and seeking to uphold it in life, they turn away from it. They ignore it. Ignoring God and living as though he doesn't exist. You know, we studied Ecclesiastes end of last year into the beginning of this year. Remember Ecclesiastes' theme? Here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And as we walked through the book, the fearing of God is going, understand his blessings. Enjoy what he has given. Like That's repeated over and over. Like, Oh, well, if I'm going to fear God, it means life's going to be miserable. It's like, no, enjoy what God has given, but do it with a focus on him. Watch out for selfishness. Selfishness will destroy you. Here, Jude is saying, look at these individuals. They live in a selfishly irreverent way. They're ungodly people. Secondly, we look at their characterization. They're not only selfishly irreverent, they're sensually indulgent. They turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. They take God's favor that's undeserved 
it's unearned, and they distort it. They use it as a basis to go, well, I can sin. Last week, we talked in Galatians about those who turned from grace and what direction they go. Self-righteousness. Yeah, God would be happy with me. I mean, look what I did. I went to church. I wore a suit. I put some money in the offering, right? Like, hey, watch out. There's danger in self-righteousness. And now in Jude, we're looking at the other end going, there is danger if we take God's grace and we use it for selfish indulgence. Errors on both sides. Instead, we should be taking what we've been given as a stewardship, the faith, and seeking to live rightfully with it. You know the stories of the mom who gives this child, you know, $10, $20, maybe today it's $50, I don't know. Go to the store and pick up this and come back. There's all kinds of stories out there. And it's like, eh, and they go to the store and there's candy and there's toys. And instead of accomplishing their stewardship of coming back with bread and milk, they've enjoyed themselves. They've distorted the purpose for which they've sent, they were sent. They mishandled their stewardship in a very real, far more serious way, obviously. God's given us incredible grace through Jesus Christ. He's given us the truth of his word. And for a lot of believers, they're like, man, glad life's comfortable and good. I can indulge myself a little bit here, indulge myself a little bit there, and we begin to live selfishly. If we wanted to see the same theme in Galatians where we were last week, you could go to Galatians 5 where he said, stand fast in your liberty. Like, you don't have to go back to the law. Be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Like, you're free. And then he says, only use not, this is verse 13, only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Because there is a propensity for us to go, well, you know what? I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. I can do what I want. No, you can please Jesus. That's what we're freed to do, to serve those around us. This word lasciviousness, it's one of those $10 words, involves a lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct that violates what is right. It is most often used in sensual contexts. We witness lasciviousness today in all kinds of ways. Our culture is rampant with it whether it's pornography or adultery or homosexuality or immorality, we live in a very lascivious culture. And it is not just the world. Plenty of believers as well. Do you know what? Having experienced the grace of God, having been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go, I don't want to give in to selfishness. I don't want to trample the grace that I have been given and misuse it. Instead, I want to please the one who bought me, who's given me this truth. By the way, you'd see their same theme and their selfishness, their sensuality show up in verse 7 and 8. It shows up there as we read earlier. It shows up in verse 11. It shows up in verses 18 and 19. Like it's a repeated theme in this little book. They were described uh, there in, what, which verse was it? Verse 18, these be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the Spirit. Again, you could find the same theme in Second Peter. Unfortunately, it says they have a lot of impact, these kinds of false teachers. There's a lot of parallels between Jude and Second Peter. Second Peter 2.2 says, many shall follow their pernicious ways. The idea of that word pernicious is actually lascivious ways. Okay, Many will 
follow. They bring themselves into bondage as a result of giving into that kind of sin, verses 18 and 19 tell us in 2 Peter 2. Okay? Grace is never an excuse for self-indulgence in sin. Never. Romans 6.1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Verse 12, let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield you your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. Catch this verse, verse 16, Romans 6. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. It's like you choose your master. And if you choose to yield to your selfishness and sin, that's your master. That's who will control you. If you want that kind of despair and destruction, that's where you go. But on the other hand, if by grace, if by the salvation given to us through Jesus Christ, if by the indwelling spirit of God, we yield yourselves and say, God, I just want to please you. I want to obey you. And I yield myself to be used by him to be righteous, conformed to his standard. By his help. Only by his that's my master. Ties in with the next and final thought that we need to see here very quickly. The characterization of these false teachers are selfishly irreverent, sensually indulgent, and sinfully independent. Sinfully independent, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejecting authority, right? They have no God awareness. They want to live in sensual sin, lasciviousness, saying, well, you know, God's been very gracious to me and and they're denying the authority of God over their lives. In fact, two different words are used. The one that's attached to Jesus Christ here is Lord is kurios. It's the frequent one through the New Testament. The one that precedes that, that's also here translated Lord, we could just translate master because it's the word, uh, we get our English word despot from it. Like the one who's in control. So here is our authority. God who should have authority in these false teachers' lives is rejected. Jesus is disregarded. They live against authority. Again, we already touched this, but notice it shows up in verse 8, verse 16, and verse 18. In verse 8, they despise dominion. Verse 16, they murmur and complain. Verse 18, they're mockers. Mockers are one who's like, you know what? I can be sarcastic against authority. Okay? And Judah's writing saying, I, I wanted to start. My initial purpose was just to talk to you about salvation. Like, isn't that great? We can believe it. We can rejoice it. We're going to do that tonight good reason to be back at the Lord's table, okay? But an urgent priority came up. Stand and defend. Earnestly contend for the faith that you've been given. It's your stewardship of the truth. Recognizing that there is an insidious problem that can show up. It creeps in, it's covert, and it is this selfishness, this self-indulgence, this sensuality, this rejection of authority. Watch out. Contend. Fight sin and selfishness in your own life and stand for the truth publicly before others. Don't allow grace to be distorted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once more for the incredible kindness you have shown us through your son, Jesus Christ, providing salvation that we don't earn, but that you freely give us by faith in his finished work. Lord, for believers that are here today, I pray that you would help us to be on guard 
against error in our own lives, to watch out that we wouldn't be led back to selfish, sinful ways. Lord, if we find ourselves there to, to seek the repentance and forgiveness that you freely offer because of Jesus Christ, that, Lord, you would be pleased in us. It's in Jesus' name I pray.